After the near disaster of Apollo 13 and the successful return to flight of Apollo 14, Apollo 15 was set to extend what could be done on the lunar surface. It was the first of the J missions, which were designed to extend the scientific work done by previous crews to new levels. The mission had four main objectives. Uh, One, explore the Hadley-Apennine region, and this means geology, lots of geology. It's going to rock. We haven't even started the show and you've already done that. Uh, Also, set up and activate lunar lunar surface science uh, experiments, make engineering evaluations of new Apollo equipment, uh, and conduct lunar orbital experiments and photographic tasks. But despite Apollo 15's successful flight, the mission would later be marred by negative publicity over some of the actions of the crew who arguably tried to profit from their time on the moon. Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this time by LinkedIn Jobs and Audible. This is the next installment in our series marking the 50th anniversaries of the crewed Apollo missions. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Mr. Jason Snell. Hi there, Stephen. It's good to be back with a little more Apollo. This is our, our last Apollo uh, of the year. That's right. Because the last two missions are, are, uh, are next year. We're, we're just blasting through them. <laughs> I know. Apollo uh, happened fast, it turns out. If you do them in real time, you realize how, how fast. All right, so let's get started with um, our discussion of Apollo 15 by talking about the crew, which was Commander Dave Scott, Jim Irwin, who was the pilot of the LEM called Falcon, and Al Warden, who was the pilot of the command module Endeavor. Now, Dave Scott was an army brat. His father was a pilot in the U.S. Army Corps who retired as a brigadier general. He wanted to go to West Point, but uh, he didn't have the connections to get in. Um, So he took an exam and uh, spent a year at the University of Michigan where he was an honor student in the engineering school. And then he got into West Point. So after his freshman year in Michigan, he transferred in to West Point. The year Scott graduated from West Point was actually the first year of the Air Force Academy. So in those days, some portion of West Point and Naval Academy graduates, you could volunteer for the Air Force instead. Scott, who finished fifth in his West Point class. Pretty good, pretty good. Especially for transferring in. uh, He wanted to be a pilot, and the Air Force wanted him. So he flew planes for the Air Force in Europe and then enrolled at MIT to get a graduate degree in aeronautics in the hopes of being allowed to become a test pilot at Edwards Air Force Base. You do get the impression um, that Dave Scott could do anything he put his mind to. Yes. Um, The problem is that he was so talented that after he got his MIT degrees, the Air Force wanted him to be a professor at the new Air Force Academy. (laughs) (laughs) And in something that's kind of unusual, because you're going outside the chain of command a little bit, he actually went to the Pentagon and kind of like talked to some people there and said, I'd really like to go to Edwards instead and be a test pilot. And he managed to do it. He managed to get his orders changed and he got to go to Edwards. And we know you're going to hear this about all three of these astronauts, uh, the path from there. Uh, and it leads to, in 1963, uh, Dave Scott became one of the third group of astronauts selected by NASA. So we've mentioned Dave Scott on liftoff a few times before. He flew on Gemini 8 with Neil Armstrong. Uh, that's the mission you'll remember that their Agena target craft was. They were spinning attached to it, almost blacked out. Yeah. Uh, that incident cost Scott the chance to do a spacewalk on that mission. 
Jim and I ate really almost got real bad. Yeah, and the, and they by firing the thrusters that uh, Armstrong had to fire in order to get them uh, safe, they uh, that was like an end of mission thing. They yes. had to come back after that. They couldn't they couldn't stay out there and do the spacewalk. Um, Scott also credited uh, Armstrong gets a lot of credit for for kind of getting them out of the uh, the the spin. But Scott also did some stuff with the Agena where he like, uh, even though he wasn't asked to do it, he realized he needed to set the Agena back to uh, ground control instead of from their control. Uh, and by doing that, he allowed that Agena to stay up there and they were able to use it on a future mission. So he was definitely, both of those guys, even though their mission was a failure in some ways, um, NASA looked very positively toward what their behavior had been and as a result scott uh got slotted in he was the backup crew for apollo one and obviously after that accident all sorts of things changed but then he became the uh command pilot for apollo nine that's the mission where they tested the limb in earth orbit and after that mission was successful uh, scott and his crew were backups on apollo 12 and then he became one of the very special groups of astronauts uh, assigned a second Apollo mission as a primary as commander of Apollo 15. Al Warden's biography is actually surprisingly like Dave Scott's. Yeah. Shockingly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Eerily, even. Uh, he wasn't an Army brat, but he grew up in Michigan and attended the University of Michigan for one year. He then applied to West Point and the Naval Academy. So he goes from Michigan to West Point, just like Dave Scott, just one yep. year behind Scott. He's one year younger. Mm -hmm. uh, and like Scott, Warden chose to apply uh, for the Air Force and was accepted. Yeah. And uh, so, again, aeronautic story here. Warden flew a bunch of planes in the Air Force, got a master's degree in aerospace engineering from Michigan this time. Not MIT, but from Michigan. And like Scott, he wanted to be a test pilot. However... Um, Scott had his thing where he was going to be faculty instead, and he had to talk his way into it. Uh, Warden's story is a little bit different. He, instead of sending him to be a test pilot in the U.S., they actually sent him on an exchange program to the RAF in England. And so he went to test pilot school in England. Um, and then he applied to NASA. He was selected in the fifth class of astronauts in 1966, so a little bit later than Scott, but still sort of ended up in the same place. And he worked on command module development in the early days. Um, a bunch of NASA astronauts were actually out working on the command module when the Apollo 1 accident happened, including mm -hmm. Warden. Um, but that, you know, working on the command module qualifies you pretty well to be a command module pilot. Working on the limb obviously qualifies you to be a limb pilot. I think they all knew it. Uh, anyway, Warden ended up as the backup pilot for Apollo 12 uh, and then slid, as, uh, as Scott did, into the slot of Apollo 15 as command module pilot. James Oren was the limb pilot. He grew up in Pittsburgh, went to the Naval Academy, and then got a master's degree in aeronautical engineering from the University of Michigan. Hey. <laughs> hail to the victors. I know the fight song. Hail to the conquering champions. Hail, hail to Michigan. Um, yeah, my mom went to Michigan. Uh, anyway, three Michigan Wolverines, folks, on this mission. There is a rumor, by the way, that the astronauts left a University of Michigan flag on the lunar surface. It's not true, apparently. They did leave stuff. That, look, we're going to get to it. They, they took a lot of stuff with them that is... Uh, anyway, it's a, it's a whole story that we'll talk about. But they did apparently leave a note on the surface of the moon establishing the lunar branch of the Michigan Alumni Association. So that's your, that's your Michigan memorabilia that ended up on the moon. <laughs> that's pretty great. You can put that in a, uh, 
recruitment brochure to give to high school students. I'm sure they did. Uh, so back to Oren for a second. He did the test pilot thing in the Air Force. He became a NASA astronaut in 1966, was the backup limb pilot for 12, and they got his seat on the prime crew for Apollo 15. Yeah, so all these guys went from 12 as a backup right on into to 15. That's how it's supposed to work, and that's how it worked. This is the fifth mission planned for the Lunar Service. Now, we should talk about this. So Apollo 15 is different. You mentioned that they're part of the J missions. This is the kind of... Uh, it's what had been learned on the previous missions was applied starting with this mission. So there are a bunch of new designs and hardware that we had not seen before in Apollo before 15. Yeah, that's right. And we're going to get to uh, get to that as we sort of unfold uh, through here. Mm -hmm. uh, the lunar rover is my favorite. Just yep. like I'm just going to put it out there. We'll get there. We'll my get favorite there. Apollo hardware. Uh, but Apollo 15's astronauts also wore redesigned spacesuits. Keep in mind in the Earlier missions, they were much shorter stays on the lunar surface. They'd get to the spacesuit, go outside for a while, come back, and then leave. Apollo 15 was designed to hang out for a while, and so a new suit would be needed. Yeah, so they designed a new version of the suit that was easier to put on and easier to take off in the cramped conditions on the limb because they were going to need to do it multiple times. At the end of the day, the astronauts would basically step into kind of a bag in order to keep all of the um, moon dust contamination at, to a minimum. They would kind of unzip and strip down to their long johns uh, and then uh, like let it set out to, to dry because they had sweated into it yeah. before they go the next day. Um, and it was also more flexible. There was a whole middle section that was flexible. Uh, unlike the previous uh, spacesuits, the astronauts on 15 and beyond could bend over completely, pick things up off the lunar surface, and actually sit down on that rover that we're going to talk about. Like, you've got to be able to sit in a chair. The old spacesuits couldn't do that. And their backpacks were significantly upgraded in order to increase how much time they could spend out on the surface. Another change that was uh, present on Apollo 15 is uh, scientific instruments packed into the service module. So the end off the command module. Uh, one of those bays had a bunch of scientific instruments uh, for uh, work, both on the way to the moon, around the moon, and then coming back. This included three spectrometers, two cameras, a laser altimeter, and a little baby satellite that Warden released into lunar orbit, PFS-1. Uh, this studied plasma, particle, and magnetic field environments around the moon. It returned data for 16 months after it was released. Uh, and this was basically the last thing they did before leaving lunar orbit. It's like a little lunar CubeSat, kind of. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good... One of the things that struck me about this is so much in these days when there are not very many satellites and there are not space telescopes in anything, a lot of the science being done on Apollo is actually like, oh, we're going to have somebody in space. Can you do this while you're in space? Can you take pictures in ultraviolet when you're in space? Because we can't see like it's a lot of that kind of thing. I think in this mission, they made like an ultraviolet transparent panel. Um, on the command module so that they could do some ultraviolet photography and then they had to, you know, insulate it when they weren't using it so that they didn't get ultraviolet burns. But like, it, it just, it, this is an era where there is no access to space, essentially. So 
even you know if you're going to the moon the the time to and from the moon is an opportunity to do other science that involves being in space because there's so little of that so this is like this is essentially like a a whole equipment stack put in the service module Mm -hmm. Some of it to photograph the moon and stuff, but some of it just general science while you're out there in space. Yeah. And we see that today, even the first SLS launch is going to release a bunch of CubeSats. I mean, it's it's not uncommon to piggyback on yeah, while you're there. missions. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to be in space? Well, I got some stuff you could take there, so you do that. It's on the way. I might as well just stop by the store, you know? Yeah, exactly. So anyway, um, uh, cool story about scientific experiments going on, but let's get down to it. The hardware star. Here it is. The moon buggy. Yes. The most fun you can have sitting in a lawn chair on the moon. Maybe sitting in any lawn chair anywhere. Yeah, I mean, could be. Pretty could big be. fan. Uh, Apollo 15 was the first to take the lunar rover vehicle, or LRV, with them. This let them explore more of the moon's surface than any of the previous missions, because you could drive around. You weren't stuck to just where you could walk. Although, as we'll talk about, that was a limitation on how far they would let you go. It's true. It's true. You got to be safe. When you got to be NASA. able to walk back if you get stranded. There's no AAA in space, is what we're saying. So it was actually uh, Werner von Braun who first suggested that they might want a moon buggy as far back as the mid 50s. And so in the early 60s, work began at the Marshall Space Center on how a vehicle would need to be designed to work efficiently on the lunar surface. We have to take a little bit of a detour into uh, Saturn V history here. In those early days, the plan was for these later missions to be supported by two Saturn V launches. So you could take large, heavy equipment to the moon in parallel with the launch that took the crew to the moon. Uh, As such, you could have a pretty big rover. So early designs called for a rover with things like a pressurized cabin, much like the lunar module itself. So you didn't have to be in that bulky spacesuit. You could just be in the rover in a pressurized environment. Yeah, it'd be like a limb uh, with wheels. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so meanwhile, Boeing and JPL were both working on a study to design a small uncrewed rover for the surveyor program. So just let's make an uncrewed lunar rover robot like the ones that we you know, have seen in the years since. Uh, and that design would use a wire mesh uh, cre- system for wheels, giving it the ability to roll over rocks safely. As time went on, as budget shrank, the two launches per mission idea was scrapped. So this idea of a large pressurized rover just wasn't feasible. So suddenly NASA had to turn to smaller, lighter designs to be able to take a rover with the crew to the moon. So this is where this work at Boeing and JPL uh, came into play. Boeing ended up being contracted to build the lunar rover based on the work done out of Marshall, JPL, and there were a couple of outside engineering firms uh, involved as well. There ended up being four complete LRVs built, one for 15, 16, and 17, and a fourth that would have been Apollo 18, but that mission never happened. And then there were other models assembled for ground support crews to troubleshoot issues should they arise during a mission. The final design weighed 462 pounds on Earth, 210 kilograms, could carry over about 1,000 pounds, 490 kilograms in payload, had a seven and a half foot, 2.3 meter wheelbase, and measured 10 feet, three meters in length. 
It was a very eclectic vehicle. It was powered by a pair of 36-volt non-rechargeable batteries. So it's a disposable electric car, I guess, <laughs> with a capacity of 121 amp hours in those batteries. They powered the rover and its onboard communications. And it was totally tricked out in terms of uh, it knew exactly where it was, and it had like all sorts of sensors. It was sort of like a, a, a mini limb in terms of its instrumentation. And it could go top speed about eight miles an hour. Yeah, although that would be pushed on later missions. The LRV was designed up to fold into thirds, and it was packed away in one of the storage areas aboard the lunar module. So if you look at pictures of the limb, you have the ascent module up top where the crew are, and you have the descent module, that's the part that we left behind on the moon, and that's got all the legs on it. And between those legs, there were storage compartments. So one of those had been repurposed for the LRV, when it was time to unpack it, a crew member would open an outer panel and the LRV would slowly be pulled free using a series of ropes and pulleys, kind of halfway fold out onto the ground, and they would pull it out and unfold it and be ready to go. Now, when we talk about rovers on Mars, wheels are always in the conversation. The same yeah. is true for rolling hardware on the moon. Um, the wheels for the LRV were designed and manufactured by the General Motors Defense Research Laboratories. Who better? Mm -hmm. uh, they were spun aluminum, a spun aluminum hub and 32-inch, about 80 centimeters diameter, 9-inch, about 23 centimeters wire or wide tire made of wire, made of zinc-coated woven thin steel strands. These were attached to the rim and discs of formed aluminum with titanium chevrons covering 50% of the contact area to provide some traction. So they're not like, if you've ever seen one of these, uh, we saw one in Houston at, at the Johnson Space Center, um, Visitor Center. Um, it, it is like a woven wheel. It's a wire wheel. It's really unusual. It looks like piano string almost. Mm -hmm. It's really different than what we see on like the modern day Mars rovers where they're, you know, titanium with grooves and slots cut into them. Uh, yeah. The front and rear wheels could be steered in opposite directions for tighter turns. So just like a sports car, you know, from the 80s and 90s. Uh, and crew members could engage this coupling, uh, making the LRV front wheel steering only. So if they were in a situation where that was more advantageous, they could just switch modes. Each wheel had its own electric drive running at about a quarter horsepower each. And there were also two steering motors, one for the front and rear. So six electric motors in total. It sounds impressive that the, the front and rear wheels could be um, uh, dis you know, uncoupled from one another. Uh, what ended up happening on Apollo 15 is that the front steering didn't work. So they had to steer the entire time from the back steering. And at one point they got back to the uh, limb on one of their drives and the back steering didn't work. And they thought, well, we can't drive this anymore. But the next day they went out and the back steering did work. For some reason, uh, G GM was involved. What do you expect? Yeah, not not perfect. Anyway, uh, you control this thing uh, by using this uh, sort of like a joystick. It's a T-shaped hand controller between the two seats. Uh, you move the stick forward. It goes forward, left and right. Turn the vehicle left or right. Pulling backward activates the brakes. And it was always driven by the mission commander from the left seat. It does sound like easier to pilot this thing than the limb, right? You just <laughs> yeah. kind of, you got the stick and you go forward to go forward. At least you can see where you're going in the lunar rover, unlike the limb. Uh, we mentioned the the seats earlier. It's my, one of my favorite parts about this. It, they basically look like cheap folding chairs. You'd see it like a cookout, aluminum tube framing, nylon webbing, really lightweight. And you just uh, sat down and 
Went for a drive. Yeah, I I mean, I assume that they didn't just take folding chairs and cut them off, but it looks like they did. It looks like they actually did that. That would have been a way to save a lot of money or to charge the government a lot of money as a contractor and then just get some folding chairs from Sears and and uh, cut them up and put them in there. But they, they do. I'm not kidding. Steven's not kidding. If you haven't seen them, it's just like a folding chair. It's it's it, like identical. It's hilarious. Um, you could have a cookout, but you're on the moon, so you you can't. <laughs> <laughs> All right, there's much more beyond uh, the, the lunar buggy to talk about. But before we do that, we should probably take a break and tell you about one of our sponsors. Stephen? This episode of Liftoff is made possible by LinkedIn Jobs. Today, many small business owners are busier than ever. We're focused on growing and managing our businesses. And owners can't always spend the time they wish they could on recruiting. That's why LinkedIn Jobs has made it easier to find and hire the best candidates for free. I've done a bunch of hiring, both here at Relay and in my previous career. It's really important to find the right person, that they're going to gel with the team, that they're going to meet their responsibilities. And having tools like LinkedIn Jobs really do make it easier because you can get your posting for free uh, in front of 740 million professionals on LinkedIn's network. You fill out targeted screening questions to get your role in front of the most qualified candidates with the experience, skills, and motivation you're looking for. Then it's easy to filter and prioritize the top candidates you'd like to interview. LinkedIn Jobs will help you hire the right person for your role. Every single week, nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn. So post your first job for free at linkedin.com slash liftoff. That's linkedin.com slash liftoff to post your first job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Our thanks to LinkedIn Jobs for the support of the show and Relay FM. Yeah. All right, let's talk about the mission timeline a little bit. Okay. Apollo 15 lifted off from the Florida coast at 9.34 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on July 26, 1971. There was no Apollo 12 lightning strike, thankfully. Uh, But in reading about this, the crew of 15 did have some hiccups on this mission. Uh, The first took place on the way to orbit. So the Saturn V had multiple stages, and when it was time to separate the first and second stages... The first stage didn't cut off cleanly. It took actually four seconds longer than planned to throttle all the way to zero thrust. And that's, that meant that it was closer to the second stage than it was supposed to be. And when the second stage ignited, it destroyed the telemetry package on the first stage. This happened because the interstage section was dramatically different than ones used on previous launches. The section used eight solid fuel rockets to assist in the separation and help the second stage to settle. On Apollo 15, this had been redesigned to use just four small rockets. These and the set of retro rockets on the first stage were removed to allow more payload capacity for launch. Yeah, the ability to carry the LRV had to, had to come from somewhere. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the first stage still splashed down in the Atlantic Ocean, just minus data streaming back to NASA about its descent. Uh, there would be one more engine problem, though, on Apollo 15. During the transposition, docking, and extraction process to remove the limb from the upper stage, a light indicating that the SPS 
was firing went off. Uh, this is the single motor on the edge of the service module uh, or on the end, right? You don't want it turning on on its own. That would be real bad. Um, but after some troubleshooting, it was discovered a set of valves in the motor were told to open by a faulty switch. The crew moved to the backup set of valves. The SPS was well behaved after that. So that's a that's a real uh, bullet dodge there. Yeah. <laughs> on the way to the moon, the crew took part of uh, several experiments, including the eye flash study to document how many flashes the crew saw when their eyes were closed. We've talked about this before about radiation hits the back of your eyes. Uh, so this was uh, going on kind of in between these other issues. And the reason I put it here in the document is, even though we're talking about some of the issues on 15, they still had work to do. And this is why you hire, I guess, a bunch of Michigan graduates who are test pilots, that they can still perform the mission, even though the equipment may be acting faulty. Now, on their first inspection of Falcon, the lunar module, the crew discovered some broken glass floating in the limb. Not great either. Turns out it was an outer cover of a set of instruments that uh, indicate distance and rate of approach when it comes to touchdown on the moon. Uh, the instruments were sealed uh, and filled with helium, uh, but the ground crews said it's okay. They'll work uh, in the limb's atmosphere. It's not that big a deal. So uh, that's good because you, you never like to find uh, broken glass in your workplace. No, especially when your uh, workplace is in low gravity and you don't, want, yeah. you don't want to breathe those in. You don't want them puncturing things. No. One little problem we ought to discuss with you before we go on. It seems that uh, somewhere along the way, the outer pane of glass on the tape meter has been shattered. I don't know whether you can get a picture of it on the TV or not, we'll get Al to try and uh, zero in. But uh, about 70% of the glass is gone. The inner pane of glass seems to be okay. There is no apparent damage to the tape meter itself. It's sitting on uh, 520 and 482. But uh, I don't know whether you can see it or not, but I'll trace the area which is missing. My finger here. And... Uh, it looks like the pieces we found, I found one piece that's almost an inch in size, and there's some smaller ones around. We'll try to pick it up with a tape and then uh, get the vacuum cleaner later on to uh, get it all up. The next day, the crew found another issue aboard their spacecraft, uh, as you can hear from this clip from the NASA public affairs officer. Then at uh, 61 hours, 15 minutes elapsed time, Dave Scott reported that as he was beginning to chlorinate the potable water on the command module, a leak developed in the chlorination port, a rather substantial leak. We advised them to uh, turn off some uh, regulators to uh, reduce the pressure in the tank immediately and then passed up uh, a procedure which uh, corrected the leak consisted of using a, two of the onboard tools an allen wrench and a ratchet to tighten up uh, the port the leak is attributed to the backing out of a nut which holds some washers in that port the crew seemed pleased that they got the procedure uh, fairly rapidly. And for that, they can uh, thank the subsystem manager for the c 
Command and Service Module Crew Station. His name is Chris Perner, P-E-R-N-E-R, from the Flight Crew Integration Division here at the Manned Spacecraft Center. He recognized uh, pre-launch the possibility uh, of a leak in this port and had already written out uh, the procedures on what to do if it did develop in flight. As it turned out, those procedures did solve the problem. The, the leak has been stopped. The water has been chlorinated properly now. And the crew commented they wondered that if whether uh, Captain James Cook, the skipper of the original Endeavor, had ever sprung a leak on his ship. Uh, they, they've mopped up the interior of the command module with, uh, with towels that are now hanging in the tunnel, uh, looking like someone's laundry, according to Dave Scott. Oh, all right. Well, they managed somehow to get there. <laughs> and on the fourth day, Apollo 15 entered orbit around the moon. This is the first mission to take a more inclined orbit, so they were able to describe and photograph areas previously unseen by Apollo crews. Describing, by the way, that's a big geology thing. Uh, during a rest period, their orbit had decayed due to mass concentrations on the moon, the uneven gravity around the moon, but a small burn corrected that. When it was time to go for lunar landing, the entire command service module, lunar module stack, descended into a much lower orbit. So on previous missions, the limb had just traveled down to the surface on its own, but as the limb was much heavier than before, the larger SPS engine on the back of the service module was needed to slow things down to drop closer to the surface. Boy, everything just gets more complicated when you got more weight. Mm -hmm. uh, so the crew attempts to separate and uh, nothing happens. <laughs> 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 Turns out an umbilical in the tunnel had come loose. Uh, but as a result, Falcon separated 25 minutes later than planned. It wasn't a big issue. However, uh, what ended up happening when on their way down was they ended up, up a few thousand feet off course. Um, Scott looks out the window and sees a, a mountain that they're descending past and is like, uh, that wasn't in the simulation. And he's looking at, at like the landscape that they've studied and none of it really matches the photos that they had studied in their planning session. So he ends up spotting Hadley Rill, which is their target. And they basically he nudges Falcon back toward their, that target and got them relatively close given how far off course uh, and off target they were initially. Yeah, they ended up about 1,800 feet from the planned landing site. So overall, not too bad. There's one last unusual thing. You mentioned that the weight makes things more complicated. Uh, that meant that it had a larger bell ha housing for the descent module. And the crew had been instructed to keep uh, blowback from the moon surface at a minimum. So to keep the lunar dust as settled as possible. You don't want to kick a lot of that up. And so as soon as one of the limbs probes made contact, Scott shut down the motor and Falcon ended up dropping to the surface from a height of about a foot and a half, making it the hardest landing in, a, in the Apollo program. Uh, didn't hurt anything. Yeah. And like I said, we in, they ended but pretty close to where they were supposed to be uh, set on an incline near the rim of a small crater. 
Yeah, Andrew Chaikin's book, A Man in the Moon, says that there was a little bit of pilot pride in Dave Scott as well. Like they had they had noticed that all the limb landings had been sort of like this stair step where they kind of hover for a long time and then they go down a little bit and down a little bit and there and he wanted to do it. So so they were trying to do it better, but he really wanted to do it better in sort of a smooth landing. And he was ready to cut it the moment the contact light, which is the little wire that like is down below the landing gear. Uh, as soon as that lit up, he, he immediately flipped off the uh, the engines and they dropped. Um, and so, yeah, it was apparently quite a jarring uh, little landing, but it was also sort of part of the plan. And I think Dave Scott took great pride in um uh, not dawdling up and not hovering above the lunar surface, but getting down there. Like, we're here. Bang. Yeah. Let's just get here. Boom. Landed. Apollo 15 was the only time that an Apollo mission did what's called a stand-up EVA, which basically is um, Dave Scott was concerned that because their mission was going to be several days long, unlike the missions up to this point, they needed to st- stick to a proper sleep schedule. They actually scheduled the mission and timed the mission so that they would land uh, a little bit before their natural sleep cycle so that they would not be awake for a long stretch of time and then be expected to do a full day's work, which would have been really bad. There's a very strenuous work out on the surface, these EVAs, and, and you have to do a series of them over several days. So they set it up so that they only had a little time before they would need to sleep. So what they did was they, uh, before getting in the lunar hammocks where they, uh, you know, w- that they were going to use to sleep, they opened the docking hatch and Scott climbed up and spent about half an hour looking around and describing what the scene was around the limb. It's like uh, just sticking your head out the sunroof and seeing what's around. A little bit. And this does show just how important it was for this mission in particular to observe the landscape. Because more than any previous Apollo mission, 15 was about lunar geology. Geology! Woo! So uh, Caltech geologist Lee Silver and geologist Farouk Elbaz spent a lot of time training Apollo crews out in the deserts of the American West from the air and from the, on the ground and training them to be observational geologists. Collecting rocks and bringing them back for the experts to look at is good, but having trained people who can choose what to collect based on that training is way better. So the Apollo 15 crew, uh, both Scott and Irwin on the ground and Warden, who was orbiting above, they spent a lot of time observing geological features. And by all accounts, uh, they really did on this mission make their geology instructors proud. In fact, the Apollo 15 landing site was at the foot of the Apennine mountain range. Uh, This rises at more than 15,000 feet in elevation, making them among the highest on the moon. And it really paid off. Uh, One of the biggest finds of any Apollo mission was a sample called the Genesis Rock, which is at least 4 billion years old. Mm -hmm. Scott and Irwin chose to collect it specifically because they remembered a discussion about types of rocks they may encounter on the moon during their training. Geology. Geology! People, geology. And what better way to collect rocks and observe the landscape than by driving around? That's right. Uh, the LRV gave the crew access to way more of the moon's surface than ever before, and in the end, the astronauts drove it more than 17 miles, that's nearly 28 kilometers, over the course of uh, total drive time, three hours in that thing. And the astronauts were limited on how far they could go from the limb. NASA calculated something called the walk-back limit, which basically meant that... It's like it sounds. Yeah, you can't go, you can't drive any farther than you could walk back in case the LRV breaks down on you. And uh, the further along 
uh, during the mission, the lower the walk back limit got. They also accounted for astronaut sleepiness. You know, the less oxygen you have, the less walk back time you have. Mm-hmm. So, so the the you know over time, it just kept creeping closer and yep. closer. And they didn't want to do it. There were sort of two things. There was a uh, what if what if the uh, what if the car breaks. And then there was another one that was like, what if one of the suits breaks? And they had contingencies for both, where if one of the suits, you know, one of the, the, the life support systems breaks, you could actually, they had like tubes, you could run the reserve oxygen from one to the other and get back to the limb. And there was a debate about whether they needed to worry about what if the car and the suits broke? Because obviously if you if the suit breaks and you're sharing oxygen, your range is decreased dramatically. And ultimately NASA was like, convinced that, that they didn't need to do that that they were not gonna if, if both of those broke they were gonna lose an astronaut <laughs> and they're like it's probably not gonna happen and that was a risk that they decided was so low that they would take it i i want to mention something i know you love the lrv steven it sounds like maybe riding on it wasn't that fun or or maybe it was that fun if you really like the idea of off-roading and lunar gravity i guess so maybe i do <laughs> I get the sense that it's all in the eye of the beholder, that maybe Dave Scott, who drove the thing, thought it was a lot of fun. It sounds like Jim Irwin was holding on for dear life as it continually did its slow, jarring bounces across the surface. Uh, Maybe liked it a little bit less. Yeah. (laughs) Found it a little unpleasant because he had no, again, he's a test pilot too, has no control. He's just a passenger and they're bounding around on the surface like that. But apparently it was, at the very least, we'll say it was a jarring, bumpy ride across obviously just rocky lunar terrain. And at one point on the slopes of Mount Hadley, they had to take turns holding the rover so it wouldn't slide down the slope and potentially wreck itself. Yeah. Literally, it's like, hey, can you hold on to this car while I go do something? Like, yeah, yeah. okay. And then they switched and because <laughs> and, they didn't want it to slide down and tip over or, or get away from them or something like that. So it was, uh, you know, there, there were issues with it. Now, during the crew's first of their three EVAs, they, uh, they prepared the ALSEP. As you do, and listeners to this show will know about it, the Apollo Lunar Surface Experiments Package. It's the stuff they put out on the surface and run experiments. That's just like in the name. In addition to the 170 pounds of rock samples they brought back, they were able to obtain a core, a lunar core sample from 10 feet below the surface with layers dating back billions of years. Now, when this mission was planned, they didn't understand just how tightly packed the surface of the moon's material was and it ended up being incredibly difficult to get the core sample down and especially to pull it back out because it was so densely packed you couldn't kind of wiggle it to make it loose and while they did get it out it took a long time it cut the uh, amount of exploring that they could do in the LRV by a lot because of the time they struggled to get this thing in. And my understanding is that Dave Scott basically completely exhausted himself and his, his like fingertips because of the way you had to clamp and, and do like permanent pressure. You, you're, you're, um, you, you can't just like hold your fingers together. You had to exert pressure because the default point uh, on the gloves was not together. So if you can imagine this, it's like you have to do just continuous pressure on your fingertips while you're also exerting with your other muscles to try to pull this thing out. His fingertips were like bruised afterward. Like it, was, it sounds really brutal, but they did get, and they couldn't cut it into the three pieces that I think it was supposed to be cut in. So they had to, they kind of cut it in half, <laughs> found some place to put it in the limb. Cause after all that work, they weren't going to leave it behind, but like it was a big deal, no. but it was also a treasure trove. It was billions of years of lunar surface history in that core sample. And, and all the time that I was reading about this, I kept thinking about the mole 
yeah. the Mars Insight Mole, because it's the same thing, which is like, oh yeah, um, picking rocks off the surface is one thing, but digging down into a surface you don't know much about, it's actually really hard. Has been for 50 years now. It's true. Uh, while on camera, Scott demonstrated Galileo's theory that all objects in a given gravity field will fall at the same rate, regardless of their mass. Of course, in the absence of atmosphere. Uh, so he dropped a hammer and a feather at the same time, and they hit the ground at the same time, proving the theory correct. Well, in my left hand, I have a, a feather. In my right hand, a hammer. And I guess one of the reasons uh, we got here today was because of a gentleman named Galileo a long time ago who made a rather significant discovery about falling objects in gravity fields. And we thought that uh, where would be a better place to confirm his uh, findings than on the moon. And uh, so we thought we'd try it here for you. Uh, the feather happens to be appropriately a falcon feather for our falcon. And I'll uh, drop the two of them here and hopefully they'll hit the ground at the same time. How about that? Mr. Galileo was correct in his findings. Yeah, and for um, for those who are interested in the trivia, it was a falcon feather because falcon is the perfect name of the linen. And he brought two of them, but he only he, he figured he might mess it up the first time, but it actually worked just fine. You need a redundant feather system on your spacecraft. You need extra some extra feathers. Now, before leaving the surface, the LRV was parked. They parked it a, like 100 yards away or so, so that its onboard camera could show the LEM's ascent. It would be the first ascent caught on camera for viewers at home. Um, when Dave Scott parked it, he put a, a small Bible on the control panel. And then uh, later, before they left, uh, they, they actually left a small plaque and an aluminum statuette uh, designed by Belgian artist Paul Van Hoedonk, uh in a small crater it was uh, the the combination was meant to honor the 14 known American astronauts and Soviet cosmonauts who had died in the space race up to that point. There were actually three, I think, Soviet cosmonauts who ha whose deaths had not yet been revealed at that point, so they didn't know that. But the idea was to create sort of an astronaut memorial on the moon. The ascent stage lifted off after 66 hours on the surface, and Scott and Orwin rejoined with Warden, who had been orbiting the moon the whole time. Uh, knocking out photographic and scientific mission goals. Very busy up there, taking pictures, making observations. All right, well, time to time to go home. But before the crew of Apollo 15 returns home, uh, let me tell you about our second sponsor. This episode of Liftoff is also brought to you by Audible. Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment. They have the largest selection of audiobooks around, featuring bestsellers, new releases, and everything in between, as well as thousands of binge-worthy podcasts all in one place. As an Audible member, you get one credit every month to spend on any title in their entire premium selection, and those books are yours to keep forever in your Audible library. Whether you're wanting to pick up that new novel everyone's talking about or finally tick off that bucket list title, if you don't have anything you're looking for this month, the credits roll over for up to a year, so you can binge that next series whenever you get the time. As an Audible member, you also get access to their Plus catalog filled with thousands of hours of audio entertainment, from guided meditation to ad-free podcasts and a large selection of exclusive series, and that's just included in your membership for you to listen to whenever you like. No credits required. Uh, you can download and listen offline at any time in the Audible app, so no matter where you are or what you're doing, you can always pick up right where you left off. Now, I want to recommend some books because I'm a big fan of books. And one of the Bibles of this entire Apollo 
uh, podcast series here on Liftoff is Andrew Chaikin's A Man on the Moon, Voyages of the Apollo Astronauts. Is it available on Audible? Yes, it is. Unabridged, 23 hours. Check it out. It is, I think, maybe the definitive history of the Apollo missions. And if you're uh, looking for something more uh, fictional in nature, I would like to recommend a couple. You can uh, try out The Galaxy and the Ground Within by Becky Chambers. It's got aliens and spaceships in it. It's beautiful. I loved it a lot. One of my favorite books of the last year. And I really enjoyed The Witness for the Dead, the sequel to The Goblin Emperor. Although, if you haven't read The Goblin Emperor, it's actually fine. It's uh, it's kind of a fantasy setting uh detective murder mystery thing it's uh it was a lot of fun uh witness for the dead by katherine addison uh whether you're looking for something to entertain you while you're working from home or your next long car ride or time spent at the gym audible is right there thousands of titles to choose from go and check it out for yourself as a new member you can try it out for 30 days go to audible.com liftoff or text liftoff to 500-500 to get started. Ooh, intriguing. That's audible.com slash liftoff or text liftoff 500-500. Thank you to Audible for their support of Liftoff and all of Relay FM. All right, back home, Stephen. Let's get back home. On August 3rd, 1971, Apollo 15 departed lunar orbit and headed back to Earth. But before they got home, they had one more major task to perform. Yeah, remember those external cameras that Apollo 15 was carrying to observe the moon? Well, Al Warden had to do an EVA just to retrieve the film. And it took about 20 minutes to do that. Got to get the film. Got to get the film out. Yep. So pop the hatch on the command module and just go go get the film. Yeah. It's pretty sweet. Four days later, Apollo 15 splashed down in the Pacific on two parachutes instead of three. Those little, little hardware issues just... We're there all the way to the end. Uh, all three parachutes deployed, and it's thought that when the astronauts dumped their excess rea- uh, reaction control thruster propellant before reentering the atmosphere, it may have damaged some of the lines on that parachute, but it's not really clear. Uh, but Apollo was designed to land on just two parachutes, so they returned safely. It's good. It's all good. At more than 12 days long, including almost three days on the lunar surface, the longest Apollo flight so far, only Apollo 17 would end up being longer, and even then by just a few hours. They're really pushing the limits here of what you can do on Apollo. So now I've got to talk about one of the more strange incidents of the entire Apollo program, Mm. and it has a lot more to do with what happened after the splashdown of 15 than what happened with the mission itself. Yeah, consider this like a throwback version of our Space Law segment that we do. Space Law. Here's what happened. In the 60s, space-related stamp collecting was a big deal. It's a thing. I don't understand it either. Uh, NASA sort of unofficially participated in it. And NASA officially even printed special envelopes to be canceled on the day of the mission launch. And they were often given out as gifts. Most Apollo astronauts actually made a deal with a German stamp dealer named Horst Eiermann, who was a friend of Deke Slayton's and lived in Cocoa Beach, right next to Kennedy Space Center. Uh, The deal was to autograph a bunch of postcards and stamps and stuff for a few thousand dollars. And all of those collector items were valuable because of their connection to NASA, but they didn't fly in space. Right, right. But some stamps and other stamp memorabilia did fly in space. Astronauts had this allotment of personal space on their flights called a personal preference kit. They were meant for personal souvenirs of the mission, and special stamp collector covers were flown in the crew kits of Apollo 11, 13, and 14. Ed Mitchell actually took his to the lunar surface 
in Apollo 14. And there was an official stamp collecting angle going on during Apollo 15. On the lunar surface, Dave Scott used a special postmarking tool designed by the Postal Service to cancel a cover featuring two space-themed stamps. That cover, by the way, is now in the Smithsonian National Postal Museum. All interesting. Now the story gets really weird. So that German uh, stamp dealer, Horst Eiermann, knew another German stamp dealer named Hermann Seeger. So Eiermann went to a party for Apollo astronauts hosted by Seeger at Seeger's house because he was a pal of uh, Slayton and the astronauts. And at the party, he proposed that the astronauts take 100 stamp covers to the moon and he would pay them $7,000 each. The covers would be sold in the future after the Apollo program ended. At least that's how the astronauts understood it to be. They say they were told that this was a common practice. Obviously, other stamp-related things had been going on. Other Apollo crews, they were told, had done this and that it was like the deals made by earlier astronauts with Life magazine. Uh, the Apollo 15 astronauts agreed and said that they would take the money and save it for their kids' college education. And to put this into perspective, these astronauts made between twenty dollars and $26,000 a year. Uh, an extra $7,000, which is forty-seven grand, is a day's money. It was a big chunk of change. Yeah, and I think they feel left out because the, you know, the original astronauts got that sweet uh, Life magazine deal and they didn't have anything like that. Yeah. So they planned this system where the covers would be stamped at Kennedy Space Center on the day of the launch, put in the vehicle. Uh, when they splashed down, they would be stamped again on the recovery ship. Uh, Warden had another friend who was a stamp collector who talked him into carrying 144 more covers that the agreement there was to be sold later after everybody had retired from NASA. Also swirling around at this time, there was a, a sort of a mini scandal where Apollo 14 had carried a bunch of medallions from the Franklin Mint, which then melted them down, mixed them with a bunch of additional material, and then minted collector's coins that contained some silver that had gone to the moon and, of course, advertised about it. The only thing that stopped this from being a big scandal is that the astronauts had not taken any money for it. Uh, and, and in the wake of this, Deke Slayton reduced the number of medallions that could be flown on future missions. Right. So buzzing around is this idea of like, are we commercially exploiting the space program that was, you know, it's being paid for by the American taxpayer. Right. But despite all of that, the scheme went ahead. And it is, I would say, kind of a scheme. Now, nobody remembers who put the covers in the lunar lander, but somebody did that. So they went down to the surface. And on the USS Okinawa, which was the Navy vessel that picked them up after splashdown, they had gotten officers to go buy a bunch of stamps and fly them from Pearl Harbor uh, on a helicopter to the ship. After splashdown, the crew of the Okinawa actually helped the astronauts like lick the stamps and put them on. Um, and on the flight back to Houston, the astronauts did a whole bunch of signing of stamp covers for several hours on that long flight back to Houston. So to say that this was like a minor thing, like I don't think that that holds. They, they put in a lot of effort and got a lot of other people involved. And back in Houston, NASA employees in the astronaut office actually would type up certifications on some of those covers. Um, and then the astronauts opened germ or had opened for them, perhaps German bank accounts to pocket the money. Right. So like this was a whole thing. Yeah. This is not just a slip it in your bag and forget it kind of kind of thing. No, no, there's so so although this is a complex story and I think that maybe <clears throat> the astronauts were not treated entirely fairly, I think it's also disingenuous to say that this was uh, a perfectly uh, innocent thing. I think there were a lot of misunderstandings going on here about what was allowed and what was not, but I think also people were trying to stretch what was allowed for personal gain 
uh, you know, the amount of logistics for something that's basically not allowed under NASA's rules. That's that's why, although I roll my eyes at this scandal, it is uh, it's way more than I thought it would be when we started working on this episode. Yeah, same. And I'd always kind of just glossed over it when reading about 15 of, oh, they took some stamps and got took in trouble some for it. But this was a, a multifaceted plan with real money, like we said, and something that was, yeah. even if it wasn't against the letter of the law, because NASA's rules were changing, and in that previous case with 14, maybe behind what was going on, definitely against the the meaning of the rules, right? Yeah. That you can't you can't use your government position for personal wealth. For personal gain, yeah. And the, the idea, I think that everybody's doing it. I think that that would, I think kind of the astronauts got taken a little bit and they were also greedy. Um, and, you know, that's how you get taken is that somebody sweet talks you and, and you've got a little bit of greed, like, oh, we don't make that much money. I can put this away from the kids' college. It's easy money. All we have to do is this thing. But, um, but definitely, I think that they were using the, history of stamps and stuff in the Apollo program to kind of, uh, I think the, the, the stamp dealers were trying to use that to, to trick them a little bit into thinking they could, you know, give them enough of a reason to talk themselves into doing this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, guess what? The stamp dealers didn't wait until everyone had retired from NASA <laughs> to sell them. Uh, they started selling them and the astronauts got antsy. They finally, realizing that this this had gone, this was going to get out and there was going to be trouble. They decided after the fact, after all this was done, they gave their uh, their bank books, their passbooks back to the, the stamp dealer and said, like, we don't want this money that's in these accounts in Germany. Um, word got around to NASA mostly because there were a bunch of collectors on the legitimate stamp market who asked Aunt NASA to confirm that these were legitimate and this actually happened. Because, of course, somebody could say that these are moon stamps. Um, but uh, and, and Deke Slayton, during all of this, defended his people and then I think got extremely angry when he discovered the scope of what had actually happened. Uh, in the end, the astronauts were all reprimanded and uh, a, a formal reprimand essentially ended their astronaut careers. They were never going to fly again at NASA. And Basically, my understanding is meant they would never be promoted in the Air Force either. And then Congress gets involved, making it an official government scandal. The Senate Committee on Aeronautical and Space Sciences called a hearing, although it was closed to the public. Uh, And in the end, a federal regulation was created saying the astronauts couldn't take stamp collecting items into space as mementos. Yeah, certainly on the books to this day, uh, federal. It's not a law; it's a regulation, but it's a regulation specifically about stamp collecting materials in space, uh, which is hilarious. Here's the thing: after the scandal clouds abated, the Justice Department did an investigation here and issued a report that said most of the covers on the flight belonged to the astronauts, not the government. In 1983, Al Warden sued, and the government agreed to return the covers to the astronauts. The general feeling was that NASA essentially authorized it, or at the very least was well aware that they existed and didn't stop them from being carried. It essentially, I think, is a validation of the idea that this was an everybody's doing it kind of thing, and it's only when it became a problem that it was decided to enforce these regulations and punish these guys in particular. Doesn't necessarily mean what they did was right, but it does feel a little bit like it was all okay until someone noticed and then someone had to take the fall. Over the years, the astronauts actually did sell some of these too that they got back, which is kind of funny and auctioned them off and stuff like that. 
are they completely exonerated? I mean, there there is a school of thought that they are. I'm not entirely sure about that, Stephen. I feel like uh, this is a, a Shades of Grey story. Nobody likes that. Everybody wants heroes and villains. I think that I think that they they did get hoodwinked a little bit. But like I said earlier, I think that they did something that they knew was probably not right, but thought that they could get away with and make some money. And that's not being exonerated, right? Like, they, I think they they knew they were doing something wrong, um, but figured they'd get away with it. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think that this was clearly in the culture of NASA at the time. Totally. And maybe they got in over their heads or got enticed by the money in a way they shouldn't have. But to end your career over it feels a bit like we need some examples made to end this. Also, just as an aside, I want to mention, we met, we, we talked about that uh, statuette earlier that was left on the lunar surface uh, as a part of the Memorial for F- Fallen Astronauts by the Belgian artist Paul Van Hoedonk. Uh, uh, there is an amazing article at Slate that we'll put in the show notes from 2013 about this. It's really a great example of the collateral damage of this ridiculous stamp scandal. So Dave Scott asked this artist to make a small statuette and he made this simple modernist figure of an astronaut, but you can't tell, is it a man or woman, is it a particular race, a particular country, nobody, it's none of that. It's just a, like a silhouette. Um, but the astronauts didn't talk about it during, they didn't talk about it after. They were so paranoid about the stamp thing that they wanted the artist of literally the only piece of art on the moon to not talk <laughs> about it. Yeah. Don't mention and it. Then, and then, and when it did kind of come out and, and they talked about that they had done this afterward, they said, yes, we did leave this kind of memorial up there and they did want to talk about it. NASA then approaches the astronauts and says, could we get a replica of that for the Smithsonian? And then the astronauts call uh, Van Hoedonk and say, can you make us some replicas? And he is enraged because first off, they told him not to talk about it. And second... The Smithsonian, this is an artist, right? A fine artist, a sculptor. Uh, and the Smithsonian wants to exhibit his art and they go to the astronauts and not to the artist. And, it, like, and, and, and so there was a real falling out here. Van Hoydonk decided like, I'm going to sell some replicas of this. I'm going to make uh, 50 of these or whatever and I'm going to sell them. At which point there was this whole like artist, the New York Times did this whole story about like artist tries to commercially exploit NASA. Um, when it's like, well... You know, I think NASA was kind of exploiting the artist by having him do this. He says, Van Hoydonk actually says that um, U.S. government officials, it's unclear who, like, but I feel like this is like a visit from the FBI or something. It's guys (laughs) in dark suits and sunglasses come to see him and basically say, don't sell them. Hmm. Basically threaten him. Uh, Not cool. Not cool. Um, and I think really just amped up by the by the dumb stamp thing. So in recent years, things have changed a little bit. Von Hoydunk and his sculpture were actually honored in the Smithsonian. It's in that Slate article. He and Al Warden actually ended up working together <laughs> selling some replicas of the statue. Uh, and, and there have been replicas of the statue and a sort of a replica of the statue in an acrylic block. Uh, that were made for sale. I'm unclear if they are still for sale or if they're only the ones that were made. Um, and there was a documentary. Uh, there was originally going to be a documentary about this process in the 70s, and they shot a bunch of footage that I imagine is in this documentary. Um, and then after this all kind of fell apart, then they didn't make that documentary about this. But there is now a documentary called The Fallen Astronaut. It's available for streaming. It's on 
uh, Apple TV uh, for like iTunes rental and it's in some other places. So you can check that out if you want. I haven't seen it, but it's just a fascinating a little side story as a part of this fallout from the uh, postal, you know, can't stamp cancellation cover scandal. It seems like everything was just really cranked to 11 in the time after 15 and like no one could make the right, you know, no, there was no right call for some of these guys. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it was a bunch of institutional sort of like we're going to look the other way and suddenly all the rules changed. Um, even though, the, the you know, or all the rules were suddenly enforced, perhaps we could say, because they pushed it too far. It's complicated, but it did, you know, it did sort of effectively end their astronaut careers. Uh, anyway, if you want to see Endeavor, you'll need to go to Dayton, Ohio. It's on display there at the U.S. Air Force Museum at the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And uh, we'll just tell you about what the uh, what what happened to the three astronauts. Uh, Dave Scott worked on the Apollo-Soyuz test project. He was given that as an option after uh, sort of leaving being an astronaut. In 1973, he became the deputy director of Dryden Flight Research Center back at Edwards Air Force Base, by the way, so he could visit with his pal Chuck Yeager, who he granted flying privileges to. Yeager was retired at that point. Uh, I also get the sense that uh, that Deke Slayton was uh, furious that he had gotten this prime job because he was still angry at him about the stamp thing. Uh, and actually, Dave Scott retired from the Air Force to become the civilian center director at Dryden in 75. And he ultimately retired from that position in NASA in 77, became a space consultant, worked on a bunch of space shuttle related programs, and then also on some TV and movie projects about the Apollo program. And as of this recording, he is retired and living in Los Angeles. Jim Irwin retired from NASA and the Air Force in 1972. He said that. The Apollo 15 mission changed his view of life on Earth and uh, made him a committed Christian. This led him to undergo several expeditions uh, to Mount Ararat in Turkey in search of Noah's Ark. Uh, But he was troubled by serious heart problems, including a string of heart attacks in 73, 86, and 91, uh, the last of which was unfortunately fatal. He was the first of the 12 men who have walked on the moon to pass away, and he's buried at Arlington National Cemetery. And Al Wharton felt that the stamp incident utterly sabotaged his career at NASA. He was very unhappy about it, but he did manage to get a job at NASA Ames Research Center. He got somebody on his side who got him a position at NASA Ames. He worked there until he retired in 1975, then became an energy consultant, ran for the House of Representatives and lost in the primary, and ultimately got involved with and later became the chairman of the board of directors of the Astronaut Scholarship Foundation, which was originally, I think, the Mercury 7 Foundation, uh, which is a very cool uh, funding of uh, STEM scholarships, basically. So that's pretty cool. He died in Texas in March of 2020. So that's Apollo 15. That's it. It's a fun mission and an unfortunate chapter that is that has sort of muddied its history. And the chapter itself is sort of muddy. I hope we did it uh, at least a little bit of justice because it, it's very complicated and you read about it as a simple like oh there was a scandal and you know it it was way more complicated than that and way more shades of gray and i'm still not quite sure we know the whole story because after the fact everybody had their own opinion about what really happened and they didn't really agree so we we will never really know for sure but um still there's a moon buggy that was awesome still up there yeah if you want to read more about Apollo 15, we have a ton of links in our show notes at relay.fm slash liftoff slash 155. 
If you haven't heard our previous Apollo missions, I'll also have links to those on that page. You can go uh, check out those. And like Jason said, we've got just two left, 16 and 17. And I think we'll touch base on sort of post-Apollo projects because uh, there's some there's some interesting stuff there as well yeah maybe not in real time but i think we'll need to walk through those because there is some good stuff there uh, while you're on the relay website check out roboism it's another show here on the network hosted by our friends alex and kathy where they talk about the impact of technology on culture everything from you know actual robots to voice assistants and other technology that is blending with humanity more and more check it out at relay.fm slash roboism or search for Roboism wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Jason, we'll be back in a fortnight with a regular episode of Liftoff. Lots going on. Mm -hmm. We'll get to it in a fortnight. That's right. Until then, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, y'all.